All right, so Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll start here at verse 1. Our text is, however, verses 8 through 11. So we'll start here at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. So far, let us pray. Father, as we turn now to your holy word, please illumine our hearts, shine as it were the light of your truth upon us, so that we would behold wondrous things of your word. Give me to speak the word faithfully. Help us to listen diligently and to discern rightly. And be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be dealing here with verses 8 through 11, which are kind of halfway through the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's questions of, where are you, O God? Why aren't you answering? Judah is falling apart. And then we saw in verse 5 that God says, well, look, I am doing a work. I am bringing justice, just not the way you expected it. And so he says, look outside of the walls of Judah. Look to the distant lands, to the heathen. And he says, you're not going to believe what's coming. That's verse 5. Verse 6, we saw last time, he specifies who. It's the Chaldeans. And we learned that God is raising them up. He's sovereign over this horrific trial, this horrific disaster that's coming to Judah. And we saw in verse 6 as well that they are going to disinherit the land, right? When it says, possess the dwelling places, that is linking back to the whole possession of the land in the beginning. And it's undoing that. And so as a, as a lace would be undone, uh, so the land and Israel's inheritance is being undone. We saw in verse 7 the further undoing, and that is that not only is the seam of the land being undone, we also saw that the seam of God's law is being undone. Because the Chaldeans are a law unto themselves. It says their dignity and their judgment proceed of themselves. So they make their own rules. They call their own shots. And that's where we stopped last time. So this morning, starting at verse 8, we'll continue. I have three points. They are these, a powerful storm. Number two, pitiful strongholds. And number three, playing providence. So powerful storm, pitiful strongholds, and playing providence. So first of all, powerful storm. So Judah, you've got to remember, they, they never saw the Chaldean army coming. They didn't countenance the idea that it would be them that would ever invade the lands because Assyria was the powerhouse nation and Judah had allied itself with Egypt. So there's no way they thought they were vulnerable to attacks from the Chaldean army. But God says differently. Doesn't God often upset our thoughts, our plans, our ways? He thinks differently than we do. The Lord had spoken in the previous verses of the bitterness and the cruelty of the Chaldean army, and now he compares in verse 8 their advance to several animals, but they all focus around one animal. Did you notice that in verse 8? It talks about the horse right? There, there's all these other animals. They're compared to their horse or the horsemen. Horses were vital to ancient warfare. 
Armies that did not have horses and cavalry were usually easily defeated. But before cavalry came in, the Assyrians were much more prone to use chariots. In fact, so were the, uh, the Egyptians. We know the whole incident, right, of the Red Sea where he musters up 600 chariots. And so chariots were the weapon for warfare with your horses. But there was a shift happening in ancient times away from chariots to a different kind of warfare. Second Kings 18.23, the Assyrians already start to think this way. It says this, it says this is Sennacherib challenging Judah. He says, now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee 200 horses, sorry, 2,000 horses. So the, the, the high commander, Sennacherib says, hey, if you give money, we'll give you 2,000 horses. And then he almost in a mocking way says this, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. You see, it was hard to find people that could actually sit on and ride horses and do anything of accomplishment with them. Now it's uncertainty when cavalry exactly emerged, but the use of cavalry seems to have been growing. Now the problem was simple. Without the invention of the stirrup, what happens when somebody lances at you? You fall off. And so what they would do before cavalry is they would actually ride their horses in, they would dismount and then do battle on foot. And so the idea was completely new except for one people group, the Iranian nomads, especially the Scythian tribes. And they mastered the art of cavalry and most likely they were part of the mercenaries under the Babylonian advance. And that is really interesting because you start seeing this language in the prophets speaking about people riding on their horses and warring like that. Jeremiah 6.23, it says, They shall lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel, this is also Babylon, and have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the sea. And then it says this, They ride upon horses, set in array as men for war against thee, O daughter of Zion. So the shift was happening. Notice, first of all, the horses in this verse are compared to leopards. They are swifter than leopards. Leopards are known for their remarkable speed. When they pounce, we know the prey has no time to escape. It's sudden, right? It's suddenly like that. Similarly, this advancing Babylonian army of cavalry would come bearing down with inescapable speed. Can you try to imagine running from cavalry? Impossible. Secondly, we see that their horses were more fierce it says, then the evening wolves. The evening is when the wolf is the most hungry. He gets up from a snooze, right? And he's keenly hungry. Their appetites are craving for something, for a prey, and they're on their quest. So precisely that illusion is almost like the horsemen are super hungry to slaughter, to do some damage. Notice it says wolves, not wolf. The evening wolves is the idea of a pack, a whole bunch surrounding their prey. Similarly, the war horses of Chaldea will kindle dread and surround Jerusalem and Judah. Thirdly, it says, their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to heat. All these illusions really center on the same idea. But when it says they spread themselves, the word in the Hebrew is quite rare. And it probably means they sweep the whole countryside. Perhaps you've seen that in movies where cavalry come over the hills and the whole countryside just looks like a whole bunch of dark images flooding across the lands. And that's how they will invade Judah, fast and ferocious. There's no idea here of long, drawn-out siege warfare at all. And like the eagle, from a great distance, you think, oh, he's far away. Suddenly you see it swooping down grabs its prey, coming out of nowhere. And that's what the Chaldean army would be. And so these horses are vital to their warfare. Now you've got to remember the Israeli kings were forbidden to have what? Horses. Remember? God says, do not multiply horses unto yourself. Why would that be? Lest they trust in the arm of the flesh. But now would God would invert that because Israel had trusted 
in their own devices, their own idols. They had abandoned God, so now the very weapon they were forbidden to have would come and assault them. You fear man, then you'll fear the tools of man. Now let's consider with this verse 8 that God's judgment ought to be feared. Judah denied it was coming. Let us not do the same. Let us consider that God's judgment is unstoppable. The day of the Lord is already set. And one day the clock, as it were, will tick. And the alarm bell will sound. And this entire cosmos will be wrapped up. Distance. God is in the heavens. He's far from us. People say, oh, I don't see God. How do you know he's here? Distance, as it were, is no issue. Just like the eagle closing in in seconds. So the day will come out of nowhere. And so as one commentator said, he said this about this verse. He said, awesome indeed is the divine purpose of retribution. It's retribution on sinners. And so this whole concept of judgment should make us realize how sinful sin really is. The Puritan Ralph Venning actually wrote a book. I'd highly recommend it. It's called The Sinfulness of Sin. Because we want to kind of smooth it out a bit. But he said this. He says, if we consider the person who is sinned against and that the aim of sin is to ungod God. What punishment can be thought bad enough? And so, think also not only of the swiftness that the day of the Lord will bring, but it could also be the swiftness of death, death to us. It can come as swift as a leopard, as sudden as an eagle. How many people haven't died in a sudden car accident? You know, we, we were chatting this week about how many times we pass on the highway too and we're still here and then we hear of accidents. Comes out of nowhere. News of cancer comes upon one and with, within weeks we hear of some people passing into eternity. Do you remember the, the parable of the rich fool where he had built his barns, he's got his storehouses full, and he kicks up his feet as his were, and he says, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And remember what God says to him? God says, thou fool. You know what he says next? This is key. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And then he says, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God. Now there's some, many, that think, oh, I got lots of time, I'm young, I'll deal with God when I'm older. You don't know when your life will be demanded of you. You just don't know. That leopard could pounce in minutes. Don't brush off what God confronts you to call, confront today. The Bible says in Corinthians 6.2, it says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. We would do well to prepare for our futures today by looking now at the present word in front of us and the gospel that is contained in the word. What is upon you and me today is the grace of God. What is immediate is God's gospel that is heralded to us. What is held out to us is a God who seeks us in our rebellion. Remember in the, the parable of the prodigal son when the prodigal's still far off and he's like, I'm going to approach my father here and I'm going to see if I can work for him. What do we see? The father is out looking. He's looking for him. And then what does he do? He runs, which in those days was completely unacceptable for this man of dignity to lift up his robes and to run. And so the father runs to seek us. He's not interested in judgment. He's interested in salvation. But judgment will come. And so today, come to him. Flee to him. And think also of the swiftness of the sword of God's judgment that fell upon his son. Think how in a few hours in history, at Calvary's cross, the crushing guilt of our condemnation was on him and our guilt was swallowed up in the rich blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Have you cast yourself destitute, helpless, hopeless, as a beggar into the arms of a Savior who cries out and pleads with sinners to come, come unto me, come unto me? When you do that, instead of swift destruction, when you call upon him, you know what you'll get? Swift justice. Like, hold on. That doesn't make sense. Swift justice? When I call upon him? How is that swift justice? It's because the Bible says that everybody who calls upon him by faith will be justified. We are justified now in an instant by faith. The Bible says, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, take the Babylonian advance, the swiftness, the suddenness, look to eternity and take that knowledge and then look to Christ and get swift hope in him. In Christ, there is fullest grace. And then the sting of death is no longer to be feared. That judgment that will come that day that is set will be completely not a day to fear, but a day to long for, to be with the Savior. And so what hope we have in Jesus Christ when we look even at a dark verse like verse nine, 8. So turning now to verse 9, it says, They will come up all for violence. Their faces shall shup, sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. You notice the word violence there? The reason that's so interesting is because that word in the Hebrew is only used rarely in the Bible, well, especially in the prophets. The only prophet that uses it as much as uh, Habakkuk is Ezekiel, six times. And it was used already in verses 2 and 3. See that? The land, it says, they cry unto thee of violence. And then verse 3, spoiling and violence are before me. That word is interesting because of its frequent use in this book. And basically God says, look, you will reap what you sow. You brought violence into the land, now the violent will come upon you. And the Babylonian army is not interested in vengeance. No, they're just interested in destruction, plundering and destroying. They are just like the wicked man. Because you think about it, often you look at senseless violence. You look at people that get abused. You look at people that go through horrific violence. And you think, what brought the people to do that? How could they? Like, what's, there's no sense in this anymore. And that is as far as Judah had gotten. It's such a, an indicator of how far our nation has gotten. In many ways, we are a violent nation that is taking away the lives of the unborn, that is slaying the elderly when God says to him belong the issues of life and of death. And so this is really reaping what you sow. Psalm 71, 6 says this, His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. An old word for the top of your head. And then after this, the prophet talks about the east wind. It shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sea. Now, some translations here don't talk about the east wind. Maybe if you have a different version, it just says something like this. It says, the eagerness of their faces is forward, and they gather captives. So why this whole language of the east wind? Well, the surface meaning of the Hebrew word is forward, but the illusion that the translators clearly picked up is the destruction of the east wind. What was the east wind? In those days, you maybe have seen sandstorms in movies or, or in, in the Middle East, seen images of that. It destroys everything. Vegetation dries up. Life disappears. There's nothing left. And that is how the Chaldean army comes upon it will, Judah, it will scorch them, scorched earth. It will sup them up. But then the language here is interesting. You notice in the text it says, and gather the captivity as the sand. Now there's a little bit of a double entendre here, a wordplay. Because on the one hand, when the wind comes, it just pounds the sand into corners and up against walls. And so it will gather up the sand effortlessly. And in the same way, Judah would be gathered up effortlessly. That's the one side. But there's also an other angle to this sand language. Because every Jew 
knew the covenant promise that God promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And this is a covenant reversal again. As they had multiplied like sand, now they would be gathered up and the offspring of Abraham would be judged. Deuteronomy 28:41 had warned Israel about this. It had said, God had said, look, if you do not serve me, the curses will come upon you. And it says this, one of them says, thou shalt beget sons and daughters. There's the sand, as it were, the accumulation. But thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. The Jews later in captivity who survived who knew their scriptures, undoubtedly saw the covenant curse that had come upon them. All of this, this whole verse, all of this is carried out to a T in history. One commentator, to summarize what he said, says this. He says, following the battle of Carchemish, 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar immediately pursued the defeated Egyptian army, get this, for 150 years miles. He bears down on them. And so he's following and pursuing and destroying the Egyptians with speed. Again, lots of horses, cavalry. And then he hears of his father's death, Nebopolassar. And guess what he does? He races home, assumes the throne. It's hundreds of miles at this point. And then with the same speed at which he had gone that way, he comes back again and bears down like a desert wind, literally, that's what it says, and fell upon Jerusalem. And its numerous inhabitants, like those of the surrounding towns, would be gathered up as the sand. Prisoners like the sand and marched in long lines into Judah. Every word in this prophecy came to perfect, exact fruition. Do not doubt do not challenge the word of God. Not one word will drop to the ground. He will fulfill everything he has said. You think of social media, you don't know what to believe anymore. Is it true? Did they doctor the picture? But with God's word, every word is true. It is tried. So to take this verse and what's come before, in short, the prophet has already said this. The Jews were already, even before the battle, a conquered people. Not one drop of blood had been shed yet, but the battle had already been determined because their striving in essence was not with Babylon, but with God. How easy it is for us to provoke the covenant God even as new covenant people, even as Christians. And we provoke a swift chastisement from our God. The Bible talks about this in Hebrews 12. It talks about no chastisement of the Lord is pleasant, but it will come because as a father that's faithful, he will swiftly chastise errant children. And that's a good thing. His chastisement is good. But it's because we provoke him by contenting ourselves perhaps with our level of holiness. You see, I find so often, I, I catch myself and I, I look at our communities, we kind of set the bar somewhere, we kind of get comfortable with what we are. And we think, well, you know, most people look pretty, pretty good in the church. We, you know, there's no real conflicts going on and everything gets surface airbrushed, as it were. And, and we don't pursue holiness like God says. To pursue those vices, to get rid of those vices that are underneath our selfishness, our pride, to think about others, to serve, to take all of these commandments and to take them seriously. I, I was podcasting this week and, and this, this, this pastor says too, he says, so often we take holiness as an abstract theology, as a concept. Not as something that God calls us to work on, to strive after, to follow hard after. And so that's a challenge for us. Are we provoking the Lord because we've left his word as almost a textbook to learn and regurgitate? Perhaps for you, you provoke the Lord 
by the way you squander endless hours on FaceTime and Instagram and are feeding discontentment and jealousy by looking at the picture-perfect uh, images of other families and their homes and whatever they all post on there. And it is provoking in you jealousy and you're feeding that, you're discontent, you're, you're abdicating your responsibilities in the home. Social media can be a real vice. And we get jealous of those families. It looks good, doesn't it? Everybody smiles. You think of it. I, I know sometimes we've taken family pictures and everybody smile and it was like elbows before that and everybody kind of had to get to their right spot. It's an instant. It's a little frame. It's not a reality. Don't, don't find true beauty in those pictures. The Bible on the other hand, says this, that true beauty is not found in how many smiles you get on a picture, how many likes you get on a post. The Bible says it is the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Let's not provoke the Lord with our Facebook time, our Instagram time. Are we fighting against God in other areas? Remember Gamaliel in the Bible? They arrest Peter and John. And this wise man, he sees what's happening and he says, well, he doesn't really know who they are, and they see, but he does say these words. He says, if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. And then take these words, lest happily ye be found fighting against God. Are you fighting against God somewhere? Is it an area of your life that you've resisted him to have access to? Perhaps like the east wind, something is pounding against your conscience. Now if Judah was led into captivity... This is Old Covenant. This is the Old Covenant people. How rich then are the promises and the realities. How precious are they of the New Covenant. Which takes people who are already captive to sin and to Satan and delivers them. The Bible says in, in 2 Timothy it talks about that God will give the grace of repentance and that he may recover a servant out of the snare of the devil. And then it says this, who are taken captive by him at his will. And the new covenant is the reality where God snatches us out of captivity and brings us into his covenant grace. And so Christian, as we think about the provocations and our failures and perhaps all the standards we raised up and we see, man, we fall flat so many times in so many ways, then take hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take hope in the new covenant don't be cast down because of failure, but look afresh to Christ. Because this is so important. Though we must strive for holiness, our holiness does not keep us in the covenant. Our holiness does not keep us in God's good books. You know why? Because it never got us there to begin with. Unlike apostate, Judah, whose hope was in man. Our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. All the covenant obligations are fulfilled in Christ, and by faith they are applied to the believer. And because the new covenant is ratified in the blood of Christ, we remember that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we know that the terms of the covenant have been fully satisfied. It cannot be broken. The covenant curses cannot land on the people of the new covenant. Its stipulations have been fully satisfied. And so take hope. Although we strive after holiness, holiness is our personal holiness is not our anchor. Christ is. And never can the believer come under the threats of apostasy. In Christ, there is never going to be the spoiling of God's people. Never, never, never can the believer in Christ fall into the captivity of the devil ever again. That's tremendous hope. 
that Judah, the Old Covenant people, didn't have in the Old Covenant. Now everybody in the Old Covenant, like a Habakkuk, who looked through the shadows to Christ, he also had that hope. Leads me to the second point, verse 10. Pitiful strongholds. Pitiful strongholds. Notice it talks about the Babylonians shall scoff at kings, princes shall be a scorn unto them, they shall deride every stronghold. Remember in uh, Numbers 13, 19, when the spies went out to the land of Canaan and they had to see what kind of land it was. And then there's these words, do the people live in tents or in strongholds? Well, what's the difference? Tents are easy to attack. Can you imagine going into a campground where everybody's living in tents? You had to plunder the place. Piece of cake. But if everybody's in locked RVs, you got to plan a little bit more. Well, in this way too, Babylon scoffs strongholds. Fenced cities and castles, no problem. The walls of Jerusalem, they just laugh at them. Kings and princes, we know, live in strongholds. But even those Chaldea is not intimidated by. Because, don't forget, walled cities were not only difficult to get into, they were also a threat to the advancing army because they'd throw all kinds of stuff at you when you're trying to get close. But Babylon, no problem. That's how weak Judah would become under this army. Now, Judah, however, though not a big nation, wasn't large at all, they would lift their nose at the surrounding nations because they thought we were the apple of God's eye and so nothing's going to hit us. They cherry-picked their support. They said, ah, we'll pick Egypt, which is striking because Egypt had been their foe of history. But they assumed false security in their strongholds, in their ways of delivering themselves. And Calvin nails it when he says, in short, in verse 10, the prophet intended to cut off every hope from the Jews that they might humble themselves before God. You have strongholds? Perhaps it's easy to get arrogant about these things. Oh, my church, my faith, my Bible knowledge, my Christian family, my disciplined lifestyle. I'm not like them. And you wall up some sort of a protection, fortification. You think you're safe. These pitiful strongholds will be refuges that will disappoint. Perhaps just like for Judah, it will be a foreign power that will break those strongholds in your life. Perhaps the Lord will send an unbelieving boss into your life, a catastrophic breakdown at the business, in finances. Perhaps the Lord will destroy your confidence in false strongholds by bringing a health crisis into your life. How quickly can't our proud walls crumble underneath us, can't they? And so again, the Bible teaches us there's only one wall that will never crumble. There's only one refuge that we can really trust in. There's only one deliverer that will always stand. There's one city whose walls will never be broken. And those are the walls of Zion, God's city, the eternal Jerusalem, trusting in God. And so beleaguered saints, you may feel as though the Babylonians, as it were, the attacks of the world are beating down upon your soul, and you are about to fall potentially into great misery. Remember, though the world mocks Psalm 2 at the sun, the king, behold, I have set my prince in Zion, they mock him. Those who trust in the Lord stand secure. And so, though this is a covenant reversal for Judah, for the believer. Look at the other side. Look at the true refuge. It says here that they will heap up dust and take it. Now, when you hear that word dust, what does that conjure up in your mind? Yes, sand. Sand of the seashore, all that stuff. But undoubtedly for the Jew, it brought their minds back to the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book where it says, dust thou art. 
and to dust thou shalt return. You see, in this graphic language, the Lord reminds Judah of her mortality. We are small. We are weak. Don't take confidence in yourself. We are dust. Third point, playing providence. Until now, the question that Habakkuk has raised, really, where is the Lord, the covenant God, is answered, we saw, in a shocking way. But God escalates the problem. He only makes things worse. He raises a nation, a foreign nation, that will rival Jehovah himself. And it seems to undo everything of the covenant. God is undoing everything here. Will God stand for his name then? That's the question. There doesn't seem at this point for Habakkuk to be any end game in sight. No explanations. No mention of a believing remnant. No promise of judgment on Babylon. None of that stuff. At this point, it's dark. And perhaps that's exactly where your life is at. For you, maybe things are only getting worse. Not better. You're losing more ground, sinking more deeply, stinking of sin even more. Is there any word of hope in Habakkuk? Verse 11 is an interesting verse that way. Because in verse 11, we see for the first time that the Chaldean army would go one bridge too far. It's hinted at in verse 10. When it talks about the mocking, you have to kind of read into that a little bit. Because the mockery of Jerusalem's walls and her kings, the scoffing of Judah, is implicitly a scoffing of the God of the nation. That was always how it was in ancient warfare. And we know this from the Bible. The fall of a nation was tied to the fall of the God or the failure of the God of that nation. Remember, again, Sennacherib, when he attacked Jerusalem, and he says this, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand? And then Sennacherib says these words, That the Lord, Jehovah, should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand. And that's where Babylon, Babylon, Chaldea, makes the same mistake as Assyria. It's seen in the words, then shall his mind change. Now the translation of the Hebrew here is quite difficult. Some versions here will say, then he sweeps on like a wind, because it does talk about the ruah, the wind. But another way you can translate ruach is spirit. And so Calvin says, and I think he's right here, now he will change his spirit. And that's why our translation has, he changed his mind. He thinks differently. Don't miss this. There's something else that takes place in, the, the, in this whole text. It's hard to see. You can't see it in the English. Up until now, the Hebrew verb forms are all Descriptive. They're just describing what's going to happen. The Chaldeans are going to come pounding in and dispossess the land and, and reverse everything. But right now, in verse 11, it changes the verb form to show a point of reflection, thinking, some sort of a, almost a diagnosis of Babylon. It's a sovereign reflection in verse 11. And God says this, Chaldea will change his mind and they will cross the line. That's what the word to pass over means. It's otherwise translated in other um, places as transgress, to step over the boundary. They had passed over boundaries, right? Chaldea, it's a double entendre. Chaldea had moved past territories, over landlines, over na nations, but now they stepped over God's lines. That's what they did. And they offended, it says, and offend. And God says, very clearly, he will by no means clear the guilty. I find the tension in this whole verse quite amazing because what you're starting to see is Habakkuk's prayer 
for justice upon wicked Judah is answered by the Chaldean army. Justice would be served. But Chaldea herself would not be off the hook to do whatever she wanted to do. In prophetic irony, the Lord hints in this verse at justice upon the unjust arm of his justice. Did you get that? In prophetic irony, God shows or hints at justice upon the unjust arm, Babylon, of his justice upon Judah. Everywhere it's about God's justice. He always will serve and execute perfect justice. And the way is already prepared for Chaldea's demise. Now, step back for a minute and ask yourself, okay, where did Chaldea transgress? Where did she go a bridge too far? Where did she cross the line? What would you say? What would you think? Where was it? It might be a good time here to think of the word Chaldea. You notice that throughout this prophecy, they get mentioned as Chaldea, not as Babylon. I think that's important. Sometimes Babylon gets mentioned, sometimes Chaldea. The Chaldean tribe is very ancient. In Genesis 11:28, we learn this. Abraham was called out of where? Ur of the Chaldees. And we know from Joshua, which we just went through with Emil series, Siri, Joshua 24, 2 says this, that we know that Terah, his father, it says, served other gods. And so he came from an idol-worshipping distant land of Mesopotamia. Now the Chaldeans thus were very ancient. They were ancient in their idol worship. And they were also known to be the philosophers of the region of Babylon. They were famous for their wisdom and their authority. And they're specifically for their astrology. Looking to the gods in the stars. Trying to divine. And so this nation known and pompous for its access to the gods. Rose to power. Or Babylon rose to power through that Access from the Chaldeans. It was the Chaldeans who were always looking above and imputed power, as this verse says, unto his God. That's the Chaldeans. And God charges them now with sacrilege. So many, many years later, Abraham had left Chaldea and now his people would be taken to Chaldea. But God would judge them. In the book of Revelation, Babylon gets brought up again. She imputes power to his own God. They would attribute all the victory to themselves, to their idols. Their idols, the Bible says, if you know uh, a little bit of the prophecies, it talks about Bel and Nebo. Remember their gods. And Jeremiah says this about their attack and about their biggest crossing of the line. He says, Jeremiah 50, verse 25, Thou art found, he says, and also caught, because thou hast striven against the Lord. She hath been proud, it says, against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel, which is a staggering statement, because Israel herself is unholy, unjust, everything filthy, but when you attack the God of Israel, you have crossed the line. What a daring reproach it is for anyone to scoff at the God of Israel. You see, at root, Chaldea or Judah had the same problem. It was the problem of idolatry. And idols always compete with God. That gets to the root of all our offenses, doesn't it? Our minds deflate the creator, pop him as it were, down, and we inflate our gods and make them bigger. That is the root, right? The dark exchange of Romans 1. And you know the number one vehicle that will do that? Success. Prosperity. 
because that's exactly what Chaldea had. She had success. Her armies waltzed over all the enemies. Life was good. They took captives. They took plunder. Think about it. Success and prosperity can nourish, increasingly nourish, idolatry. There's an old saying, an ancient saying that says this. A man can bear all things except prosperity. When God permits you to succeed and your hands are full, as it were, that is no reason to get proud. It is actually a reason to fear, to be humble. Let us not be jealous of those who seem to have success in this world. We do that. We look at the Joneses. We look on the internet. And we get jealous of carnal success. Some people can bear and be very successful at struggles. And bear their disappointments well with incredible patience and calm. But when they get rich, when they get a lot of stuff, their answer is pride and self-glorification. Who gets the glory your success. And so from Chaldea's transgression, offending, offense, we learn that although the wicked can flourish for a time, and I hear that, people say, how come they have it all? God has already described their sin. And thus, he implicitly describes their doom. When God says you have transgressed, watch out, watch out. How far do you think God will allow the weakened churches in Canada to continue to be overrun by wickedness and cruel subversion as the Chaldean army? Worldly thinking may continue to inflict us as a church and it may render many crushing defeats on the people of God, upon churches. But those drunk with their own accomplishments will soon stumble. The covenant community may get thrashed under heavy judgment, but for the covenant community, for the true believer, it will be a judgment of chastisement. But when God says Babylon crossed the line, when the world crossed the line, it will not be to chastise, but to destroy. There is a difference in the arm of God. The rod and the staff execute differently for different people, different groups. I want to close with just looking back at that phrase, then shall his mind change. Because when something happens to you, when providence allows something to happen in your life, good things or seemingly bad things, your mind will be changed by it. Which way will it change is the question. Will it be received with a mind bent towards God, humbling itself under God, or a mind that is bent away from God? Perhaps, though, it will not be successes that will nip you, but it will be afflictions like Judah had. And these providences that God brings into your life that are tailor designed for you are impressing upon you a sense of God's chastisement. But chastisement is a great mercy. It is an incredible mercy from God. I would love to quote here in closing from Richard Baxter, who says this. Afflictions are God's most effectual means to keep us from losing our way to our heavenly rest. Without this hedge of thorns on the right and on the left, we should hardly keep the way to heaven. If there be but one gap open, how ready are we to find it and to turn into it? And so many Christians with David may say, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
but now I have kept thy word. Many thousand rescued sinners may cry, and this is amazing, O healthful sickness, O comfortable sorrows, O gainful hope, O enriching poverty, O blessed day that I was afflicted. Not only the green pastures and the still waters, but the rod and the staff, they comfort us. Though the word and the spirit will do the main work, yet suffering so unbolts the door of the heart that the word hath easier entrance. Did you get that last one? Though the word and the spirit do the main work, yet suffering so unbolts the door to the heart that the word have an easier entrance. And so wherever God has put you, wherever providence has brought you in your life today, submit to God. Don't cross the line. Don't offend. Saturate and fill your life with Christ. Christ in all. What love displayed for sinners. What mercy for the lost. What hope beyond our struggles. And what forgiveness freely given to us. And so, in closing, may all glory be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, precious is the word of the Lord. Precious are the providences that you bring us through to refine us, to shape us, to draw us to you. Oh Lord, may we learn from the word. May our minds be changed by the word towards you. May our bent be towards you, Father. And we know only your spirit can do that. And so I pray for anyone here who is struggling, anyone here, Lord, who is outside of grace, that you would incline their heart to receive the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.